Avirachmim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for this Shabbat and this opportunity to gather together as Mishpacha to worship before you and to encounter you. Father, I pray that as we open your word that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard, your heart received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, breathe new life into us that as we prepare to leave this building today, we are leaving here transformed and changed and ready to impact the world around us with your good news. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Everyone says, Amen and Amen. So this week we uh, are reading from Pasha Kitetse, which discusses the commandments for how parents are to deal with a wayward son, which for the record is not discussing a young child, but instead an adult uh, who has proven time and time again that he will never turn back around. We see the Messianic prophetic command dealing with a man hung on a tree, a series of commands uh, reminding Israel of how to live out the command to love your neighbor as yourself, and right in the middle of it, Deuteronomy 22, verse 12 to be specific, we see another reminder of tzitziot, or uh, the, the tassels, the fringes that we wear on the end of our garments, which we are commanded to wear to remember the mitzvot, or the commandments of Adonai. We see the Lord's command that no Moabite or Ammonite is to be allowed in the nation of Israel because of their misdealing with Israel on the wilderness journey, along with a mixed lot uh, of a lot of other commandments dealing with almost anything imaginable. And it is a key to understanding that this is the whole purpose of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is taking one final opportunity to remind Israel of the importance of walking in faithfulness with Adonai. And the reality is pretty much everything said in this Parsha is already spoken uh, of in other places in the Torah, uh, pre predicating this as well. This week we read number five of the seven Haftorot of Consolation from Isaiah. As I've said throughout, uh, these seven Haftorah Parshot or Haftorah readings are read in, uh, on the Shabbatot, on the Shabbat between Tisha B'Av or the ninth of Av and Rosh Hashanah. These particular passages of Isaiah, more or less ranging from Isaiah 40 through the end of Isaiah, speak of the promised restoration of Israel. It covers multiple Messianic prophecies pointing directly to Yeshua HaMashiach as we discussed last week with Isaiah 52 and 53 as an example, and the Lord's love and mercy for Israel. These are extremely timely and important passages of Scripture, considering that with Tisha B'Av, the Jewish world's heart and mind is focused on repentance and restoration due to the annual commemoration of the destruction of both temples, the Babylonian and Roman captivities, and so many other atrocities that occurred on the 9th of Av. Yet, despite Isaiah's many prophecies uh, of the coming destruction, because of our sins, the overwhelming majority of these final 20 plus chapters of Isaiah speak in fact not of destruction and despair, but of restoration and redemption, which is the overwhelming message from the heart of God for his creation since the fall of Adam and Eve. And this is absolutely the sentiment that we find in Isaiah 54, 1 through 10, which is our Haftorah for this week. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up there. Isaiah chapter 54, we're going to actually jump in with verse 4. So Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4, says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, nor cringe, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will remember the reproach of your widowhood no more. For your maker is your husband. Adonai Tevaot is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. 
He will be called God of all the earth, for Adonai has called you back like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of one's youth that is rejected, says your God. One of the most powerful uh, images or the, the use of imagery that we find throughout the Bible is that of the people of God being the bride of God. This concept is used over and over again throughout the Tanakh or the Old Testament in reference to Israel and the Jewish people, and it is also used throughout the Brachadashah or the New Covenant writings, what is often called the New Testament, in reference to the body of Messiah. Not the body of Messiah replacing Israel, but instead the body of Messiah made up of a Jew and non-Jew, the commonwealth of Israel grafted together into the root and the fatness of the olive tree. As a matter of fact, we made note of this last Shabbat in discussing Yeshua, saying he would not return again until all Israel proclaims, Baruch Hashem blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, welcoming Yeshua, God in flesh, in as our bridegroom, welcoming him in under the wedding canopy, under the chuppah, as our bridegroom. However, as we can see throughout the Tanakh, Israel and Judah sin over and over again. As a matter of fact, the purpose to the prophecies of the book of, of Hosea is to point out Israel's sin and prostituting themselves with the gods of Canaan. The Lord tells them they have been committing adultery on him, but that he is ultimately going to redeem them, forgive them, and restore them in faithfulness to himself. Often I have heard believers, especially in support of replacement theology, talk about how God has divorced the Jewish people and that he no longer considers the Jewish people his bride because of our many sins against him. Often Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8 will be used in support of this theory which says, I noted that when backsliding Israel committed adultery, I sent her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. But if we pay attention to this verse, we'll see two things. First, the divorce that Adonai is speaking of is figurative, referencing his sending Israel into captivity in Assyria. And second, that this part of the verse is only speaking to the kingdom of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, which had already separated itself from the kingdom of Judah. If you remember just after Solomon, when Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was broken into two, the kingdom of Judah under the Davidic reign, and then the kingdom of Israel, uh, which then almost immediately, abruptly stopped serving God altogether and started serving the Baalim and so on and so forth, uh, as opposed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not all of Israel is being dealt with here, or even the Jewish people as a whole. As a matter of fact, the rest of this verse makes that clear. Yet unfaithful Judah, her sister, did not fear. Instead, she also went and committed adultery. And there is no discussion here of God giving a divorce decree to Judah. And as I've said before, when we see the split of the nation of Israel, all of those from the northern kingdom that wanted to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that wanted to still worship him at the temple only in Jerusalem, they all packed up and they moved down to Judah, to the, the kingdom of Judah. So in the kingdom of Judah was not just the tribes of Judah and Benjamin represented, but instead it was representing the entire nation of Israel. All 12 tribes were represented in the kingdom of Judah. And if you don't believe Believe me, go and read First and Second Kings. Go and read First and Second Chronicles, where it talks about this several times throughout the text, and it specifically mentions those of the northern kingdom moving to the southern kingdom to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we see that God was not divorcing the Jewish people or, or Israel as a whole, but instead was using what should have been as an example for the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom being sent into captivity so that the southern kingdom would have their eyes opened up. In reality, moving past this verse, God makes it clear that the wake-up call through the captivity of Israel didn't make a difference. Instead, Judah continued on sinning anyways. 
But one of the primary ways we can see that this idea of God divorcing Israel was merely figurative is that the idea doesn't hold up throughout the Bible, such as God saying over and over again that I will never leave nor forsake Israel. Isaiah 50 verse 1 reads, Thus says Adonai, Where is the divorce certificate? By which I sent your mother away Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you See you were sold for your iniquities And for your transgressions Your mother was sent away And so here in Isaiah 50 verse 1 We see the Lord specifically say By the way if you think I divorced you And got rid of you You need to produce the documentation Showing I divorced you Because it wasn't God that sent us away It was us that chose to leave him but one of the primary ways, I'm sorry, uh, continue on. So, th- so what we see here is that contrary to what replacement theology likes to say, Adonai makes it clear that he never actually divorced Israel. But despite Israel's many sins as the bride of God, God does promise to renew her, to restore her, and to take her back to himself as in the days of her youth, which is what we see here in Isaiah 54, our Haftorah Parsha for this week. Keep in mind, earlier segments of Isaiah are speaking of the coming destruction and captivity that Israel and Judah will experience, and Isaiah does deal with both kingdoms that Israel and Judah will experience, but this latter third of Isaiah is primarily focused on the restoration of Israel and specifically the restoration through the promised Messiah of Israel. Again, we read from Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 6, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, nor cringe, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will remember the reproach of your widowhood no more. For your maker is your husband. Adonai Zevaot is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He will be called God of all the earth. For Adonai has called you back like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of one's youth that is rejected, says your God. The language is all of God, uh, is all God restoring the Jewish people, his bride back unto himself, that he will remove her shame and her youth and that she will remember the consequences of her sins no more. Adonai Zevaot is her husband and her redeemer. And in the promise, and, and this promise is not only a promise to restore, restore Israel, but through the restoration provided for Israel through Messiah Yeshua, he would also be able to call or would also be calling all of the rest of the world into this covenant of salvation because of what he's doing through the nation of Israel and the redemption and restoration brought through Messiah who is the seed of Abraham through whom the entire world would be blessed as the promise in Genesis says. See, here's the thing with this prophetic work of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others which speak of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity of Israel and Judah. These prophecies were never intended by God to be perceived as him rejecting his people. To the contrary, the overarching message of the Bible is that even though we reject him, he will never reject us. And as I've said countless times, how can we believe that God truly means eternal with regards of our salvation— if he didn't truly mean eternal with his promise to Israel. If he can flip the switch on Israel, what makes us think he can't or won't flip the switch on the eternity of our salvation? Either eternal means eternal or it doesn't. But no, the beauty of these prophetic works is that they are not just about the coming doom and gloom, but instead about the power of restoration, the power of renewal, the power of forgiveness, the power of being made clean again. 
The language used here in Isaiah 54 is not a rejection of the Jewish people. In fact, it is quite the opposite. It is that, it is that of a heartbeat, uh, heartbroken groom calling his bride to return to her first love. It is that of a heartbroken but completely smitten groom saying he will forgive and forget all the wrongs his bride has committed and he will take her back unto himself. We see a similar message to the Messianic community of Ephesus in Revelation 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. It says, To the angel of Messiah's community in Ephesus, write, Thus says the Holy One who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden men wrote, I know all about your deeds and your toil and your patient endurance, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves emissaries and are not, and have found them to be liars. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but this I have against you, that you have forsaken your first love. Remember then, from where you have fallen, repent and do the, do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your menorah from its place unless you repent. And this message is exactly the same for you and I as believers today. Even though we are bought by the blood of the Lamb, even though we are filled with the indwelling of the Ruach HaKodesh, of His Holy Spirit, we still step out on the bridegroom. We still sin over and over and over again. And if you think you don't, you're lying to yourself, thus proving my point. But despite our proclivity for failure, the Lord is still calling His bride to return to her first love. He is calling us to repent and to return. And our Teshuvah, we will return. Forget the shame, he says, forget the shame of your youth and you will remember the reproach of your widowhood no more. In our return, all of our sins and our mistakes, all of the things that we have done that has damaged our relationship with the Lord will fall to the wayside and will no longer be an issue and a barrier between us and our bridegroom. And the reality is, is this promise of restoration and renewal is made to both the Jewish people and the nations through the same promised Jewish Messiah. And the purpose is so that the Jewish people will finally, through Messiah, live up to our divine call to be a light to the nations. And likewise, Romans says, Paul says in Romans, that the purpose here is for the nations coming into the root and the fatness of the olive tree to live up to their call, to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God, to drive the Jew to jealousy for his Messiah. Isaiah 54, continuing on with verse 7 through 8, says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but I will regather you with great compassion. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says Adonai, your Redeemer. One of the other great images we see throughout Scripture of our relationship, uh, our particular relationship of Israel and God is that of a father and his children. So we see the image of uh, God as the bride and Israel, or the people of God as the, the uh, God as the bridegroom and the people of God as the bride. And then we also see the imagery throughout Scripture as God as this heavenly father figure and his people as his children. As a matter of fact, all mankind are the children of God. And what we see throughout Scripture is that Israel, who was called to be a light to the nations, is set as an example before the nations of what our relationship with our Heavenly Father is supposed to look like. However, we continually drop the ball on that example. But what we see here in verses 7 and 8 is a powerful reminder that the Father's love for His children can never be quenched. That he cannot stay mad at us, his children, forever. And more so is the choice of language used in these two verses. 
Verse 7 begins with, For a brief moment I deserted you. Here in the Tree of Life version, the word translated as deserted is the root word azab in Hebrew, which means to loosen, to relinquish, or to permit. It can also mean to fail, to forsake, or to refuse. So it's not like God sitting here going to Israel and going, you know what, get out of here. But instead he's permitting them to go their own way. So that ultimately the hope is that they wake up to their failures and come back. But the idea is not that God abandoned Israel altogether because of her sins, but rather that Israel was running so hard away from the Lord that he loosened his grip on them and let them make their own mistakes. It's kind of like uh, if I am watching my kids riding their bicycles and I tell them over and over again not to lock up their brakes too hard because they just got, a few months ago, they just got uh, uh, mountain bikes, right? So they've got the front and rear brakes on the handlebars and you know anybody that's ridden a bike with brakes on the handlebars knows you grab that front brake a little too hard while you're moving and you're moving on your face instead of on the wheels. So if I'm, I'm telling them over and over again to stop hitting the brakes so hard uh, or they risk flipping their bikes, but they continue to do so over and over again anyways, eventually I'm going to stop wasting my breath and trying to keep them from getting hurt and I'm going to let them learn a difficult lesson on their own. This isn't because I don't love them and it certainly isn't because I want to see harm come to them, but it is because they refuse to listen to what is for their own good and sometimes because we as humans tend to be hard-headed. Lessons have to be learned the hard way. Anybody been through any of those before? Lessons have to be learned the hard way. The rest of verse 7 says, But I will regather you with great compassion. With rachamim gedolim is the, the Hebrew that's used there. Rachim, uh, racham means mercy. More specifically, it means to show loving mercy and compassion. Again, using the image of my kids and their bikes, when the time comes that I stop reminding them not to lock up their brakes too hard and let them risk learning the lesson for themselves, and they do, in fact, lock the brakes up and flip over the handlebars and get hurt, the idea of Rachamim Gedolim is that as their loving father, I will run over and check on them, see if they are injured and how bad, and instead of lambasting them over their error, I will wrap them up in my loving embrace and comfort them. Instead of beating them over the head and reminding them of how I told them and told them and told them and they still refused to listen, reminding them of how dumb it was to lock up their brakes and how I tried to warn them, instead of all of that, I simply show them love and mercy, forgiveness and compassion. Verse 8 doubles down on this reality and says, In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says Adonai, your Redeemer. And the Hebrew translated here as kindness and compassion are the words chesed and racham. And these, again, the same word as used before, racham. And these words are synonymous with each other. Again, we see the same image. A loving father allows his children to continue down a path he has warned them over and over again against and allows them to learn their lesson the hard way once they have experienced how much of a mistake they have made and how uh, how and have suffered the consequence of that said mistake as a loving and compassionate father he draws them back in to his loving embrace wipes away their tears cleans up their wounds speaks words of encouragement and comfort and compassion over them and pours his love upon them this is such a vastly different image from that that we often hear from believers about the god of the old testament from what is often taught and believed by many as this idea of a vengeful, wrathful, angry, vindictive, judgmental God versus the God of the New Testament that's all lovey-dovey and happy-go-lucky and filly and, and warm and, and whatever. But there's not two different gods. One of the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, there is the God of all creation. 
And he is exactly the same from the foundations of creation as he is at the end of all things. He doesn't change. Just because we find ourselves in a situation where we don't see ourselves as close to him as we were before doesn't mean he changed. It means that we were idiots and changed. But when we come back around again is when he wraps us in his embrace and says, I was here the whole time. I never left you. Just because you walked away doesn't mean I walked away. We see a similar portrayal of the love and compassion of a father in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The younger of the two sons approaches his father. Uh, appears to be a, a, a rather affluent family. And, and the younger of his two sons approaches him and goes, Hey, hey Pops, you know, uh, I think I can have a really good time on my own. So, you know, there's this inheritance waiting for me. If you wouldn't mind just cashing mine out and giving me the money and, and I'll just go do my own thing and, and, and it'll be okay. You do yours, I'll go do mine and I'll enjoy the world around me, right? And so the, the father goes, All right, you know, that's what you want to do. And he cashes out his inheritance and sends him away. Now, you got to understand, especially in Neary's culture, and this is true in general, but in Neary's culture, right, to gain your inheritance means that somebody died. That's the only option. You don't get an inheritance while somebody's alive. So by the son and the younger son approaching his father and saying, hey, pops, I want my inheritance. Really what he was saying was, hey, pops, you're dead to me. I want what's mine. You're dead to me. I'm going to go do my own thing. You're not worth my time anymore. And so he gives him his money. He sends him along on his way. And uh, as he goes on about his way, the, the, the reality is, is that this father is sitting here constantly soaking in the reality that his son doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. That his son has written him off. That his son has walked away from him. No worse action could ever be conceived by a parent than to hear his own child say to him, you are dead to me. But I imagine after years and years of putting up with watching his son make poor decision after poor decision, the father finally gave in to allowing him to find out on his own that life is hard on his own. So he cashed out the son's inheritance and sent him on his way. Did the father want his son to leave? Not even remotely. Did he hope his son got what was coming to him? Obviously not. Instead, the father sat on the front porch daily watching and hoping for his son's return, taking some, some uh, poetic license, if you will, here, creative license, because I doubt that there was a front porch with a convenient rocking chair and a table for his glass of lemonade sitting there, but you get the image. So he's sitting on the front porch daily watching and hoping for his son's return. And one day, that's exactly what happened. The son ran out of money after wasting it on all the pleasures of the world and ran out of options for survival. He realized even his father's servants have it better than he currently did and decided he'd return to his father and beg of him to be even just a lowly servant in his house. So here he comes wandering up the driveway and from the distance the father can make out his son and he takes off running. Keep in mind the father's been sitting there staring down the driveway the entire time he's been gone longing for the day when his son would come back. His father had no doubt, just like Abraham going up the mountain with Isaac for the binding, the Akedah, for the, the sacrifice of Isaac. There was no doubt in Isaac's mind that both him and Isaac were coming back down that mountain. And in the same sense, there was no doubt in the father, the prodigal son, that his son would one day come back again. And he looks up and he sees him coming down the drive and he takes off running after him. And before the son can even get the words out of his mouth to simply beg to be a servant, his father throws his arms around him in a loving embrace holds him closely and tells him everything is going to be okay. 
He shows such love, compassion, and mercy on his son who only months before had basically told him that, uh, told his dad that as far as he was concerned, he was dead. Yet when he came back, his father had nothing but chesed and racham for the boy. Interestingly enough, this is the heart behind the discussion of the wayward son that we find in this week's Torah Parsha in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. This, again, isn't discussing, as we said earlier, a toddler or even a teenager, though I'm sure in my teen years my parents thought often about this passage. But instead it is talking about an adult child who the parents would have to deem there is no hope left for. Then the parents have to take their child to the elders of the city at the city gate and vocally profess there's no hope left for him. Then they would stone him. But keep in mind that the Torah requires there to be two or more witnesses for capital punishment and that those witnesses, which in this case would be the parents, would have to be the ones to throw the first stone and be involved in killing their own child. We never read of this occurring anywhere in the Tanakh or even for that matter in Jewish history as a whole. Why? Because what parent is going to give up hope that their child will turn their life around? And in the same sense, our Heavenly Father will never give up on us either. So much so that He gave of Himself for our salvation and restoration. Our Heavenly Father is never going to reject us. He is never going to turn His back on us. He is never going to forgive us. Uh, forget us. Sorry, He will forgive us. He's never going to forget us. He's never going to walk away from us. No matter how hard we try, He is never going away. This is the image of Isaiah 54. That no matter how far we run, no matter how terrible our decisions are, the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. He is our Heavenly Father and His love will never fail us I don't know how many of you need to hear that today I don't know what your lives are like I don't know what you're going through in your day to day reality but your heavenly father will never leave you or forsake you your heavenly father loves you so much that he gave of himself for your salvation and restoration your heavenly father recognizes you walking away from him and is sitting at the end of the drive waiting for you to turn back around waiting for you to run back to his loving embrace, waiting for you to come back and simply cry out for him. He doesn't want anything in return. He's not looking for you to do something to earn his love and salvation. He just wants you to come back into his loving embrace. As I prepare to close, I'd like to ask our worship team to go ahead and make their way back up to the Bema. Continuing it on in Isaiah 54, verse 9 and 10, it says, For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more cover the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. Though the mountains depart and the hills be shaken, my love will not depart from you, nor will my covenant of peace be shaken, says Adonai, who has compassion on you. How powerful are these words of promise to Israel. How powerful are these, uh, is this promise and, and these vows spoken by a bridegroom to his bride. How powerful of a promise are these words spoken by a heavenly father to his children. And these words ring true for you and I today. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10 reminds me of the words of the great and wise Marvin Gaye. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. 
Ain't no river wide enough to keep me away, to keep me from getting to you. Understand that Adonai loves you. He desires relationship with you. He has literally given all for you. And he would do it all over again if it was only for you. Often we try so hard to run from him, to run from his love. We think we know best, or at least that we know better. But inevitably, we learn the hard way that we don't know crap. The heart cry of the Lord for his people is still the same. Return to your first love, and I will show you chesed verachem. I will show you kindness and mercy. I will show you my loving embrace. All he wants is for his children, his children to run back to his arms. All he wants is a deep, intimate relationship with each and every one of us. It is time that we understand just how much he gave. Not for somebody who clearly loved him beyond imagination before, but for people who, like the prodigal son, said, but God, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. I don't need you. And he says, not only do you need me, but I know what you need to come back to me. And I'm going to provide that return. I'm going to provide the means. Your heavenly father loves you. Your bridegroom loves you. And he wants nothing more than for you to come back to him. Though the mountains depart and the hills be shaken, my love, love will not depart from you, nor will my covenant of peace be shaken, says Adonai, who has compassion on you. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you are a compassionate and merciful God. Father, we thank you that you are quick to forgive those who call upon your name. And Father, we thank you that you are constantly drawing us back into your presence. Lord, I ask that you will continue to breathe new life into our hearts and our lives, that you will continue to build this mindset of restoration in our hearts and our lives, that we will not only be turned back to you, but, Father, that we will be giving our all to you in worship and in service, and that we will share the love of Messiah with others in such a way that they will come running back to their Heavenly Father. Lord, restore us that we may be used by you to share your restoration with anyone and everyone that comes across our path. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.